0: A company like Pinterest has millions of transactional emails to send to people. The scalability challenges of sending high volumes of email means that it makes more sense for most companies to use an email as a service product, rather than building their own. Chris McFadden is the VP of Engineering and Cloud Operations at SparkPost, and he joins the show today to explain the architecture of SparkPost's email as a service product. SparkPost started as an on-premise email technology company for large enterprises and has since evolved into a SaaS product. In 2014, the company migrated to the cloud, which has changed its infrastructure as well as its operational model. Full disclosure, SparkPost is a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. I hope you enjoy this episode. Chris McFadden is the VP of Engineering and Cloud Operations at SparkPost. Chris, welcome to Software Engineering Daily.
1: Great, thanks, Jeff. Glad to be here.
0: You work at SparkPost, which is an email delivery service. What does that mean?
1: Uh, so what what that means is uh, we we help companies uh, deliver email to to their customers. So a lot of companies they need to um, send everything from you know, purchase order, I mean purchase requests, um, forgot passwords. Bank statements, all of those kinds of things that need to be delivered, as well as even marketing email as well. So, we are um, we really provide a platform to deliver a very really large chunk of the of the world's email, particularly legitimate email, um, both in our cloud service as well as we have on premise offerings that people run.
0: Now, if I'm running a company like Twitter, what kinds of scalability problems would I encounter? If I were to try to stand up my own transactional email service
1: yeah, so the so and certainly we have a lot of customers that use our on-premise uh, product that do stand up their own um, but it's a very uh, challenging um, endeavor to do that. So you need to purchase a lot of uh, servers you need to purchase the software and then you need um, operations staff to be able to run that. you also need deliverability and compliance experts to be able to, to manage your email infrastructure. Uh, there's also security concerns and things like that as well. Uh, from a scalability perspective, you need, um, you need to be able to you know, ramp up based on the bursting requirements you have. So it can be difficult to add additional servers very quickly, um, especially if you have bursty traffic. Unlike, uh, unlike some web applications, um, email servers are very stateful. So you have a lot of uh, data that's on the that's on the server, and adding new servers needs to they need to be coordinated with the rest of the of the cluster. So, um, so that can be a challenge if you're if you are on premise is being able to manage, you know, especially the elasticity needs of your demands.
0: You mentioned a term deliverability. What does that term mean?
1: Yeah. So, so delivery, delivery, and deliverability. Um, that is in some ways the most challenging part. Of email, so you know you can certainly. It's very easy to send an email, but the challenging part is actually getting the inbox provider, such as Gmail, to actually accept the email, and then also getting it into the user's inbox. Uh, one of the challenges that we have in this industry is that most email out there really is spam or phishing. So, with the the inbox provider such as Gmail, they'll assume that most email is spam. So so you have to know all of the techniques um, and the idiosyncrasies of, of email to be able to, to, to get it delivered. So that comes down to your proper configuration you know, of, of your security settings, proper um, uh, properly warming up your your um, IP addresses that you're using to send, uh, following best practices around handling spam complaints and, and bounces and unsubscribes. So if you don't f- follow those practices, your email will get blocked, or we'll certainly go into the into the junk mail folder. So that's, that's sort of the whole, beside the technical part, there's really all this extra uh, stuff that goes on top of it to be able to get the email into the inbox, and that's deliverability.
0: In order to give people who are unfamiliar with the technical depth of where, like how much complexity there is in an email going from point A to point B, could you give, I mean, in whatever depth of explanation you want to go into, Given a contrast of like, what happens when I send just my own a single email on Gmail or some other email service versus what happens when I send an email using a delivery service, and I'm you know I'm sending uh, you know a large mass of transactional emails throughout the day.
1: Yeah, so uh, Gmail as well as say Hotmail and Yahoo and AOL, those are really uh, they provide an inbox, an email um, service for people. For really to to person to person communication, so you write up an email and you you send it to somebody, and Gmail will handle um, a lot of the um, the details of, of ensuring that it gets that it gets where it needs to go. But when you're dealing with um, you know the companies that, that that we provide a service to, it's really machine generated emails. So transactional emails are coming, say, from a an e-commerce system or from Maybe it's a marketing front end that's generating these. And so when you're sending that mass volume of email, um, that is where um, the inbox providers like Gmail are much more suspect of those. They're not coming from a person. They're really coming from a company. And there's a lot more, um, there's a lot more suspect activity that goes on there. And so it's a lot harder to deliver um, a large volume of that kind of email at scale. Again, sort of person to person communication that um, that's a lot easier, I think, for the inbox providers like Gmail to, to provide that service. But you wouldn't be able to use that same service to, again, send your password resets or to send your marketing emails.
0: What are some of the layers of infrastructure or different types of providers that sit in between me at my, uh, you know, sitting at my inbox service like Gmail or if I'm, uh, if I'm making a request to a, a spark post server or some other email service, what are some of the layers of infrastructure that that email, that message is going to pass through before it potentially makes it to the other person's inbox?
1: Uh, so for, for example, if you're sending from or sending from our service uh, to Gmail, um, the email certainly will go over a number of different um, intermediaries in the internet. Um, but what you would want to do, certainly, to ensure that your that your email is secure, is um, within email we use uh, what's called TLS, which is very similar to what you might use on the on the web. If you're shopping, everything will be secured through through SSL or, or HTTPS. So that can certainly be one way you can just guarantee that you know where um, that the email is secure going from from you know your delivery service through to to the end recipient. Um, the, the rest of the infrastructure, it means the email is a very old service and is very distributed. So it leverages a lot of the, um, just the basic, uh, infrastructure of the internet. And I think that's one reason why it's so, so ubiquitous and, you know, and, and, and continues to grow in popularity.
0: So SparkPost as a, uh, email delivery service Uh, expresses an API or it reveals an API to uh, developers who want to interact with email in an automated fashion. What are the ways that a developer typically wants to interact with an API for an email? Like if I'm a developer, what are the different conditions where I'm going to want to send an email and what are the kinds of configuration points of the API that I'm going to want to mess with?
1: Yeah, so we provide both a REST API as well as uh, SMTP. So I'd say maybe about 50% of, of developers will simply just integrate with us through SMTP. And that's that's a very well-known um, API. We provide a way to be able to pass control information through special headers. Uh, but I think the interesting area where there's a lot more flexibility is using the REST API. A primary API endpoint that the customers will use is... Is the transmissions API, and what that allows you to do is pass in a content like a template, essentially, and which is HTML. But you have the ability then to um, then provide a list of recipients and then fill in the template, um, not just mail merge, but um, you know, to be able to even do like a shopping cart and other things like that within within the email and dynamically generate your email. Other things that you would want to do through there is you can you know, provide additional meta information like campaign ID or, or, or other tracking data. That way you can get that back through reporting and analytics, tie that back into your own system to understand you know, whether somebody actually got the email, whether they opened it or clicked clicked on certain links and be able to then improve your um, your overall uh, program and effectiveness.
0: I, one thing I've always heard about developer APIs is- is that they can be tricky to build because you have to avoid ever making breaking changes when you update the api because uh you know if you were to break somebody's uh now deprecated api that they may have built on then they're gonna start to get bugs and they're not gonna know where this is coming from how do you think about evolving the developer api over time
1: So when we decided to launch SparkPost a few years ago, we spent a lot of time thinking about how we wanted to do the API in a way that was a a modern, a modern API that would that would be flexible for us to to iterate on. We did settle on using the the REST uh, approach, which is uh, which one of the foundational parts of that is you have uh, resource endpoints, and then the the data format is JSON. There's a couple advantages of doing that in that we can, we can not break the API, but continue to iterate and improve on it. We can add additional elements into the JSON bodies and responses. We can add additional uh, parameters as needed, and we can also add additional endpoints. So it's, it's been possible for us to continue to have v1 of our API without introducing any breaking changes, and we've, Continue to develop, you know, additional features um, and capabilities, new endpoints as well as new features and capabilities of existing endpoints. Um, so that's that's something we, that we take very seriously. We have a, a governance group that that monitors that stuff. We um, just as a as a principle across the board, you know, we don't we don't do those kinds of breaking changes. And I think the the mechanism using those of uh, using REST, I think, really helps with that.
0: It's always interesting to me to talk to people who are building services for developers because it's a much different customer base than if you're building a software product for marketers or for retail people because you have a technical customer and you can ask them technical questions or they will give you technical feedback for things that they want in the service. What is the relationship like between SparkPost, the company, and the developers that you work with? Or the developers that are consuming the API, I should say.
1: Yes, right. So our, our customer base is developers, in both from startup you know, all the way up to larger enterprises as well. Uh, so that developer audience, uh, we do have to work with them in both marketing as well as supporting them in a different way than we might with a, a different kind of customer base. Uh, so developers, they really appreciate good uh, technical content and tools. So we provide things like um, client libraries and migration guides and and how tos, so that so they can very easily you know understand the service and get up and running. Even the whole onboarding process has to be very simple. Uh, that's one reason why we do a freemium model as well, so that you know they don't have to put in a credit card or or pay for anything. They can try it out. They can use it. They can even use it for extended period of times for you know, for sending 100,000 emails uh, a month for free. So that, that's important because of again that developer audience. Uh, we also have a, a Slack channel, so uh, developers can join the Slack channel and talk to our developer relations group uh, as well as even our support team and our deliverability team. So being able to get you know that kind of interaction, um, I think is important to developers. Um, some. You know they certainly can submit support tickets but being able to actually just have a chat and ask you know how do I how do I use this PHP client library um, and getting that quick feedback um, can be very helpful for them so uh, we do continue to try to nurture this developer community and um, and really listen to them and and it's important also to be able to you know when they provide feedback that we actually act on that and you know deliver improvements and features based on that feedback
0: the company has been around for 15 years, providing various email services, although I imagine that the things that people have needed out of a, an email as a service have changed over time. How has that business evolved?
1: Uh, yeah, so so we have been doing this a long time, and up until a few years ago, we were uh, focused 100% in developing and delivering on-premise software. So we have two on-premise products, uh, Momentum and PowerMTA, and they are very popular for on-premise. And we used to, you know, be, um, the mindset, you know, we would do a release or two every year. And that seemed, that seemed to work well. When people are running their own infrastructure, they don't really look to upgrade very frequently or make major changes on a regular basis. Uh, but. There really is a increasing trend to move more things to the cloud. And so our own customer base, as well as looking out in the market, people are looking to not have to run all that infrastructure themselves because it is complicated and not just the servers and the software, but all the, the, the human elements of being able to run that properly. Uh, so, so that's why we moved to the, that's why we moved to the cloud. And now at this point, most of our focus You know, has been providing this cloud service. It's great because we can iterate very quickly. And rather than once, you know, a couple times a year doing releases, we're doing releases, um, deploying new software several times a week. And that way customers can get that, you know, get those improvements very quickly. And I think that's just, again, that's just a trend across the industry now is people looking to focus more on their core business and use more cloud services for things that are, um, that are, you know, Easily accessible.
0: Give me an overview of the SparkPost infrastructure as it looks today.
1: So the the core engine for SparkPost is Momentum, and that's the um, that's the same MTA that we sell to a lot of our larger on-premise customers. Uh, Momentum is a very powerful, and very fast uh, system that um, occupies again kind of a core part of our of our whole infrastructure. Beyond that. Uh, most of our infrastructure is based on microservices. So a lot of Node.js code, um, some different data pipe, pipe sorry, data pipelining processes for metrics and reporting. And in our front, our front end is a client-side JavaScript app. So that uses the same APIs, um, that our customers use. We also have a lot of tooling around compliance and deliverability. So understanding, you know, who's the, um, you know who's maybe a bad sender that we need to be able to suspend or terminate, and then ensuring that our deliverability, um, you know, is 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 as optimal as possible. That requires a lot of automation as well, and the actual infrastructure we have, you know, to be able to to scale the way we need to scale, it's all. Uh, and the nice thing about Amazon, it's all it's all virtual, so we can um, treat that infrastructure as code and uh, automate a lot of that.
0: Were there any adaptations that you had to make to allow the on-premise, the originally on-premise software to be deployable for the cloud, the uh, the elastic model that you have for uh, a lot of your customers today?
1: Yes, it was a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, initially, when we first started in the cloud, it was much more of a momentum in the cloud or a managed cloud approach where we took the on-premise software as is and installed it you know in in the cloud and it worked very much the same way um but that that was a couple of years ago and so since then we've moved to more of this you know continuous delivery model and more elastic uh based uh, scaling so um this um uh, the main MTA momentum is a very mature and complicated piece of software mostly written in C and um so to be able to take that, where we were doing very infrequent releases, and being able to deploy that several times a week, really required a different um, mindset and how we did it. So we had to add a lot of additional automation, a lot of additional automated tests in particular, and really automate end to end the whole uh, test and deployment of the platform. We had to rethink the entire configuration of the system. Uh, we had to rethink, um, you know, how we how we scale up and how we scale down, and um, it's. Certainly has been a bit of a journey. I don't think we're hundred percent where we want to be, but um, it's been a little bit simpler for some of our other microservices and such, which are kind of more natively um, amenable to that uh, to what we want to do in the cloud. But for um, for Momentum, you know, which is a very again very large system, um, it would be akin to trying to you know automatically deploy a database and auto scale a database. It's uh, that kind of complexity.
0: It was interesting because it sounds like. The way that it worked out is you have this monolith that customers have been deploying on-premise for many years. And then when you decided to turn it into a cloud service, you had to put some tooling around it. You also built a bunch of microservices around it. And that seems like the way that you're building out from here on out. But it seems like you still kind of have this core monolith that you work around uh, that you deploy to the cloud or is, is that accurate? Or are you trying to like break down the monolith? Um,
1: what's the the yeah, so the yeah. So, so the momentum part of this, the MTA uh, it's really responsible for doing the email delivery. And uh, so as such, you know, that's kind of an important part of the whole service. Uh, it does also have APIs built into it. So we use that for, um, for things like, like message, like generating messages Um, and, you know, so instead of also submitting messages through SMTP, you can do it through REST. Um, but that is still like a core part of the engine and and needs to be very scalable. And so that kind of proven technology, which is used, you know, some of the largest senders in the world, uh, has been very beneficial to us. So, um, there are some things we've had to do to make that easier to deploy and, and that includes, you know, again, rethinking how we configure it and how we operate it. Um, but it is a really solid piece of technology. So um, the things that we have been building around it are everything from you know, users and accounts and reporting and analytics and some of the management components, self-service aspects of that. They don't really belong or need to be part of that um, kind of core MTA. Um, so I wouldn't say so much that it's a, a monolith. It's more... That's a really big part of the of the service. Um, a lot of the other services are much smaller uh, compared to sort of this this main engine. But yeah, it's um it's still sort of a service oriented microservices approach. Um, but there's sort of an outsized member of that whole group, which is which is Momentum.
0: Now, what kinds of testing did you have to write for it to uh to get it in a situation where you could have that continuous deployment model that you're talking about.
1: So we already had a really solid set of unit and integration tests for for the platform for Momentum. Uh, where we needed to do more was through our deployment pipeline. We have additional um, additional functional tests that are automated and smoke tests. So so when we um, kind of roll it through, we have a. Uh, sort of a, an integration environment that it gets auto-deployed to, and then we have a staging and production environments, and we have um, automated smoke and rollback uh, for that. So when we do the deployment, it will actually do kind of a rolling, a rolling upgrade validation of each. Um, you know, taking things out of um, sort of out of out of circulation in the cloud, in the in the cluster, upgrading, doing some verification tests, adding it back in. And in that, in that sense, um, you know, if there's some failure, it'll automatically roll back. So we've had, um, very good success with that. And it's, uh, you know, it's always sort of again, there's always room for improvement, uh, looking at better ways to leverage, uh, things like, uh, Amazon machine images to do, uh, to do upgrades, um, looking at how we can do more like blue-green type upgrades as well. Um, so there, there's definitely a lot of room for improvement. And we continue to, of look at our options there and, and iterate on that
0: interesting so it, the current process for doing a deployment is it a uh is it a gradual deployment like do you deploy uh you know five percent of do you do deploy deploy a change to like five percent of your servers and then gradually roll it out to more servers or how does a deployment work for a new piece of software
1: yeah so for um so each of the different microservices and services are deployed independently of each other, and each of them has a slightly nuanced, you know, method of, of doing that. Uh, in most cases, um, we do a doing a rolling upgrade uh, across the different services and do verifications and validations before kind of moving on to the rest. So um, we have, um, and we also have enterprise customers where we have a slightly different. Um, Cycle in terms in terms of which when we upgrade them, we're looking at um, probably I'd say our end goal would be doing more of a uh, kind of a blue green type of upgrade. You know, actually having standing up an entirely different um, cluster and then switching over. Just the challenge when you go back to something like like momentum, which is the MTA tier, uh, that has so much state associated with it. So you know, it's not it's not as simple as some web applications where. They're completely stateless, and it's very easy to do that. We have to kind of look at, you know, how those systems are operating in a stateful way. They're managing messages that are on their their actual spools that they're trying to to deliver. And so there's just some challenges, I think, that are very different than maybe a traditional web application um, deployment.
0: When I think about a service like SparkPost that sends email, it makes me wonder how much you actually have to store. Like, how much is persisted so if you're processing a ton of transactional emails every day for a social network like twitter or pinterest how much data do you have to actually store about those emails or do you do you have to store the email itself or is it all metadata
1: yeah there's really uh two parts of that there's the message itself so as the message comes in it gets persisted to to disc and then it stays on disc until it gets delivered so in many cases, that, that can take, um, a second or, or, less. But in other situations, there may be, uh, reasons why, why it's not delivered, um, immediately. Perhaps there's a, um, you know, a, a huge amount of mail that needs to go out right at the same time. And so if you're trying to deliver to, you know, maybe Gmail is not going to have an issue, but maybe there's other smaller providers which will not accept all your mail, uh, instantaneously. So that will stay in, Basically, an active queue. And then you may also have situations where the, 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 the ISP uh, is not, um, is temporarily not going to accept your mail for different reasons. And so that will go into a delay queue. And that could, in some cases, things may be in the delay queue for, for hours or for days. And it may depend on the sender and it may depend on, on, on the receiver. Uh, but that is, so that's the messages. And so generally speaking, you're talking about maximum staying there, you know, who knows, a day or something like that. Um, but yes, there's a tremendous amount of metadata about the messages. And so, uh, we, we take all that metadata and we store that, uh, for both reporting purposes. So you really want to understand, you know, how your campaigns or your messages are being delivered, um, how they're being engaged with. So we, we also track, for example, open and click tracking. Uh, and then we also have even more detailed metadata about the messages and we make that available through webhooks and then also an API where you can basically download this raw, uh, almost like log data. It has a, a lot more detailed information. And so uh, companies really need and, and want that real time metadata that comes back from webhooks because they need to know, uh, for example, you know, did you get your message? Did you click on it? Did you engage on it? Um, And that often will feed back into a customer's own analytics systems and their own CRM systems.
0: What databases do you use?
1: So we use a a mix of databases uh, for, for I guess you'd say, operational use. Uh, We actually have um, Cassandra, and that's nice because it's a a clustered um, multi-master type database. Uh, We also are using more um, AWS databases now. We've started using more DynamoDB. Uh, as well as Cloud Search, which is like a, a search service you can pair up with DynamoDB. Uh, we also use uh, Vertica, which is um, which is a columnar relational columnar analytics database. That's been pretty amazing for us because um, you're able to take raw data and feed it in there, and then be able to do real time ad hoc queries against the database. So we've been able to provide. Um, a lot of our dashboarding and APIs for reporting, you know, based on that data. Uh, we also use um, we also use some other databases um, for different purposes. Um, like we use um, um, RDS, like Amazon's RDS, for some things. Um, we use um, yeah, just, it. Really depends. Like, but I'd say our, our main databases are Cassandra, DynamoDB, um, Vertica, for the most part.
0: Interesting. Do you uh, do you have an internal way of deciding what database you use for a given service? Do you have like a sort of freedom to pick whatever database you want if you're in charge of a service?
1: So for for operational uses, uh, we started off with Cassandra, and that was in many respects because we were using that. We were actually at the time shipping it with our on-premise offering. And so that was something that could be easily bundled up as you know, in almost like an OEM uh, approach. Uh, but as we're doing more things in, in the cloud, we're finding it's um, easier and better to use Dynamo, uh, DynamoDB. So uh, it's really NoSQL databases for for most things from an operational perspective. Um, no database really provides like all of the features and scalability that you that you need. So sometimes you need to. Use kind of a mixed approach or hybrid approach. So that's why we're doing more things now with DynamoDB and Cloud Search. So you can store your reference data, like system or record in DynamoDB, but then have ad hoc query capability using Cloud Search. But any analytics, you know, really looking at using, you know, Vertica, uh, looking potentially using Redshift uh, eventually. Um, There's also a lot of other great analytics tools available. From Amazon that we're using um, and um, so it really it does depend on the situation but there's i I'd say 90% of the time it there's some sort of existing
0: um, pattern
1: use case that we can that we can borrow
0: let's talk more about scalability challenges we talked a little bit about this earlier in terms of why a company would choose to go with a email as a service company rather than standing up their own transactional email service but why don't you talk about how you have solved those challenges at SparkPost? How you've solved some of the scalability challenges of transactional email, or how some of those uh, continue today, and you continue to to solve them, um, and what you're working on?
1: Sure. So we certainly, um, you know, I think for a very large company that runs their own transactional email uh, service. And has a lot of their own expertise and such. Um, Maybe there's some sort of, you know, economy of scale there that makes sense. Uh, For us, um, I think the real attractiveness is for, for many companies, both small and, uh, you know, medium and even large companies where they don't have that expertise. They don't want to really develop that expertise and they don't want to have to manage all that infrastructure. Um, It allows us, you know, since we have been doing this for a long time and we have uh, a lot of expertise. Uh when we have the you know the core software which is momentum which is, you know, extremely good at what it does, um that really is one of the keys to our to our scalability is having having some of the best tools for doing that. Um again, do you think sometimes emails can be very easy, you know, you send an email, how hard can it be to get to get there, but doing it at scale does require um having really good technology. Um but then we also have, you know, The, the people services, we've got a deliverability team. We have techno account managers. We've got a compliance team. And so we can make that available to our customers and provide a service at, and more, and more at scale. And we continue to build and learn from our, from, you know, the use of our customers. So we have, um, what we call adaptive delivery network where we look at, you know, things like codes, um, that are returned by all the different ISPs. We're able to categorize them across all of our customers to provide more meaningful bounce code information, and that kind of stuff is just very hard to do if you're trying to do it on your own.
0: Many of the shows that I have hosted have been about web applications, and SparkPost is kind of different in that it's, of course, there's a web application involved, but there's also a lot of backend infrastructure, it's more, almost more of an infrastructure company, it feels like. So are the solutions to a the the scalability challenges of a highly available transactional email service, are they the same types of solutions you would have to scaling a highly available web application, or are there some distinct differences that come to mind?
1: So there are certainly many similarities. Um, there are definitely some differences. So where the similarities are is uh, much of the infrastructure that we have around the actual MTA is just plain old you know web applications and there's going to be a lot of similarities in terms of how we scale that stuff and manage high availability. Uh, where things have become you know most challenging for us or for anybody who's trying to do this with email is that there are some things that are that are not, um, uh, that don't really translate to the web application world. For As an example um, the IP that you use to send email is reputation based, so so that's there's a um, certain characteristic about it and permanence. So as you use an e, an IP address to send email, it gains reputation over time, and so you can't simply you know just add new IP addresses all of a sudden or remove that IP address. So there's some permanence to that. So as you're managing your high availability of your MTAs, you need to think about you know how how you handle the um, your outbound IPs, so we've separated out sort of the the main message processing with the actual uh, external IPs that we send. So there's like a separate kind of proxy tier to be able to do, to handle that separation. So we can add more and more MTAs uh, without needing to add more IP addresses. So you can have you know ten MTAs all sending through the same to the same IP address. So that, that's just one example where things are a little different in, in email world. Um, there's also some inherently, you know, challenging issues with like SMTPs, like a very chatty protocol. And so trying to make sure you can optimize that. Um, you're also dealing with, you know, most of our traffic is really inbound. So people are sending stuff to us rather than, um, even like a streaming service or another web application where somebody makes a request and you deliver content to them. Our customers are sending a bunch of content to us, and we're also, um, you know, uh, bursting out email, you know, out over the internet, and that's again a very different sort of uh, networking problem than most uh, web applications would have.
0: Speaking of that burstiness, is so the load is fairly bursty, or is there a steadiness throughout the day? And how do you set up your infrastructure to handle that specific traffic pattern?
1: Uh, so. It really depends on, on the customers, you know. So some customers are very bursty and, and some are not. New overall pattern generally is very busy in the morning, um, in, on, in, in the U.S. So there's about six hours that are, that are most busy. Um, and I think that is when a lot of, um, more of the marketing emails that go out. So throughout the day, we'll have a lot of transactional emails, but people will then also send their marketing campaigns in the morning. Um, most people tend to open their emails, you know, when they get into work and they're, they're looking at their, uh, at their at their at uh, their emails and they'll check it. Maybe maybe they won't check it again until later that evening. So we we do have another peak um, later in the evening when people are um, maybe on social media um, or checking their email, and so that could be busy from a transactional and from a uh, marketing campaign perspective. So um so for us it's you know looking at um you know. Being able to dynamically add uh, more capacity to, particularly to the MTA tier, uh, that's very important to us. And continuing to fine tune that process to be more more predictive, um, you know, that's that's a constant kind of journey for us to make that better and better.
0: So, uh, what is the do do you have how do you allocate load uh, between? customers so like do you have is there like a mapping of one server to a specific customer or do you have uh do you just like allocate um do you just predict load or t- maybe you could just tell me how you balance load uh between servers and map those to customers
1: uh so we have a uh our more public cloud offering is a uh, much more of a shared infrastructure so there is no specific you know, mapping of customers to particular servers oh, okay sure so it's a it's a fully shared infrastructure uh, we do have um some enterprise customers which are much much larger and there's um, more thought that goes into sort of you know how how they're being leveraged it's um, not necessarily always always the same way um but we have um some customers that are sending billions of messages a month so it's um so those require a little bit more a little more thought and are not necessarily on the same shared infrastructure but most other customers like smaller customers they're dealing with you know even millions a day and that's that's um that can be kind of peanuts for us you know as far as um mail volume so we've even had customers you know ask us it's like i want to send you know 100,000 emails uh, in an hour is that going to be a problem for you and it's like like come on like that's 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 nothing so um but we do have some customers that do have very large um volumes where they're extremely bursty, and we do have to, um, you know, handle them a little differently. I don't necessarily want to get into all the all the details. Some some of that may change over time too. So, um, but we we do have SLAs for our enterprise customers, and so how we you know, how we provide um, make sure that we're providing you know quality of service for them is extremely important to us. So.
0: So one problem that often presents challenges in a distributed system is the idea of exactly once processing and email is something where at the highest level, you really want it to only be processed once. You don't want your email messages to be sent twice. You obviously don't want them to be sent zero times. Have you taken any, like, have you looked at this problem or how do you guarantee exactly once processing in the SparkPost email system?
1: Yeah, so that's um, that is a core tenant, you know, of the actual momentum platform that we use. Uh, that's, you know, that's been tried and true for for many years now. Uh, but the basic premise for it is um, the protocol. So the when you're doing a, a REST call to the transmissions API, when you get back at 200, it's been committed to disk, for lack of a better word. So it's it's been written to spool and it's and it's there. So when you get that back, you are um, you know that it's been been received. And then we have it you know, again persisted to disk and the queuing technology and momentum is able to handle ensuring that it actually gets delivered. Once the on the ISP side, once we get back at 250 okay, then we know it's been delivered. So there is the protocols in there in there actually help ensure um at least once delivery. Now is there a situation, you know, where for example you make an API call and something goes haywire you don't get the response back or there's something that happens there then certainly we we encourage our customers in that situation that if you want to ensure at least once delivery you should retry um you can also check things like webhooks to confirm okay you know did i did that actually get through for sure and if if i don't have confirmation that it actually went through i could retry in that in that situation um but those are those are pretty rare edge cases um so email, I think, is is much simpler in the sense that the protocols are really um, built in to be able to support that. But we have other areas where, um, like for data processing and such, where it's um, um, where we've had to think through that. So, as an example, we send um, we use SQS for sending um, event data through the system and being able to to process that asynchronously. And we've had to um, deal with uh, some challenges around queuing there to. Again, this isn't messages. This is more like that metadata. And so we leverage uh, things like Redis to be able to keep track of, um, you know, whether things were already processed or not and, and handle that. So there's definitely mechanisms for, for dealing with that. Um, but it really depends. Like for messaging, it's really important that we have, you know, deliver at least once and make sure it's very rare that there's a delivery that happens twice. But, um, uh, and then on data processing, you know, we just follow some slightly different but similar methods to kind of keep track to make sure that that we don't uh, process data twice.
0: I want to zoom out and talk a little bit more about the move to the cloud. There are, I mean, it, it's easy. You know, doing the show, doing the show it's, it's easy to get the the picture that everybody has moved to the cloud or everybody is moving to the cloud. But there are obviously lots of companies out there that are still thinking about should they move to the cloud how should they move to the cloud and you've written about this some so could you talk about the strategy that you had for moving to the cloud and how that is going today like how you've updated the strategy how you're thinking about it um maybe the 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 costs and benefits of that um for sparkpost
1: yeah certainly uh so you know our our heritage is as a enterprise you know on-premise software company and uh, so everything about that was very different than what we're doing now uh, we had um, very long product development life cycle uh, we also had a very long sales cycles so on-premise software sales cycles are uh, you know you're dealing with you know sometimes a year sales cycle it can be very very long and uh, there's a huge amount of you know risk for the company you know, they have to do this huge investment um they've probably you know, evaluated all these different options um you know this is it's a big deal to make you know a big, big investment and to be able to um you know build out the infrastructure the expertise or do a huge upgrade uh so you know even marketing to um you know we we often would sell into some of the technical organizations but we we're also uh trying to sell into marketing organizations as well into this at the CMO level besides just the CTO level. Um, what we heard from our customers, you know, is that, you know, they are more interested in, you know, not doing all this investment in their own infrastructure and, um, and they would be very interested in, you know, in cloud services. Um, so, um, it was just, it was an important strategic decision for us as a company to then say, okay, if we're going to provide our, provide our service, uh, rather than just you know installed software as an actual service, you know how are we going to do this? Um, at the time, uh, maybe if we decided to do this five years earlier, we would have made some dis- different dis- uh, decisions. But certainly, the natural choice was to not build out our own data center to use um, something like Amazon Web Services. And at that point, Amazon, it even now, you know, is really the the leader in that space. So it was a um, a very uh, good and Safe choice at the time and has proven out to be a very, um, uh, to, to have been a good choice. So that allowed us to, uh, move fairly quickly. And in the course of, um, a few months to, uh, to actually provide what initially was more what we call momentum managed cloud. So we provided a very basic momentum service in the cloud. And then a few months later, we offered a beta of our, spark post public offering which was you, know, you sign up for free and use it and then we went ga um, uh, a few months later so this is all within within a year from deciding to do this to actually going to ga with our public offering that had again a lot of the additional uh, capabilities um, that was needed for a cloud offering um, we signed up some major um, major companies like pinterest and zillow uh, fairly early on and were able to prove to them that we were much more effective um than their whoever they had been previously using and again we weren't novices at this space um and using using something like Amazon web services where it's all software based and virtualized allowed allowed us to really leverage our strengths there and um not get too preoccupied you know in again trying to build out some some massive uh, data structure i mean uh, data center that would have take taken a year, you know, just to get all sorted out, we were able to really go from zero to to GA, um, you know, all within less than less than a year. So, um, so that that um, that's also meant changes in how we do product development. We're much more iterative now. Um, we have a general roadmap, but we're really looking at you know doing smaller things like an MVP type approach, getting feedback, um, making um, more frequent. Uh, deployments and releases and then our sales approach has been completely different too so we have a lot more inside sales reps who are um, selling you know smaller deals for shorter shorter terms uh, customers are much faster the sales cycle itself is much faster people love being able to just try out the service for free and then you know if they like it they can sign up with a credit card or they can um, you know move on to something like our enterprise offering and such but it's
0: the sales cycle again is just
1: hugely different than trying to do on-premise uh,
0: software sales. It's interesting. that The sales cycle mirrors the iteration cycle in terms of how it's gotten shorter.
1: Yeah, because the actual—if you think about it, they just—if you don't mind—it's the the ease of ease of adoption is so much easier in the cloud, and there's very little investment needed by the customer to try it out. So it's just very different from that perspective.
0: So when you are moving to the cloud or when you were moving to the cloud, you looked at Netflix as a model for how they moved to the cloud. Netflix seems to adopt the higher level AWS services pretty aggressively. They are very open to saying they're all in on AWS. Other companies are more deliberate about what services they build off of from Amazon. Maybe they only use EC2 and S3. They try to avoid services that don't have some similar service on another platform like Google. It sounds like you are using things like RDS that might potentially have more lock-in. How do you decide what services to take advantage of?
1: I mean, the, the core of what we're what everything's built on is on EC2 uh, and mm-hmm. Momentum, which is really where like most of our um, our intellectual property is is um, is something that we. You know, we own that, and we and we build that, and we even ship it on premise too. So, um, that is a, a huge aspect of it. And so, we don't rely on on Amazon for any of the email delivery. Uh, but where we look at, you know, things that can help us move faster, and you know, having more using more of the managed services. So we have, um, uh, you know, using something like um, like DynamoDB compared to to Cassandra. Trying to manage our own Cassandra cluster and, you know, the actual time and energy that goes into that uh, versus something like DynamoDB. Um, there, there is some real benefits, but I don't think that, you know, using DynamoDB, you would necessarily get completely locked in. Um, it would be certainly reasonable to be able to transition, you know, back to Cassandra or to some other, um, NoSQL database that would be offered, say, by Google or by Azure. Um, so we are, we are deliberate and we do take note of those things. I think that, um, you know, that some sort of, um, you know, auxiliary services and, and microservices and such that, that may leverage more of the uh, Amazon technology, such as even now we're looking at how we can leverage some of the Lambda serverless, um, uh, technology that they have. Uh, that's, um, when you're doing it at a microservice level, it can be, uh, fairly easy then to you know to be able to replace things at a microservice uh, basis. So I think if everything is you know one big monolith and you're tied in very tightly with, you know, all these underlying Amazon services, that, that could be challenging. But we're doing it more, you know, at a um, we are doing it very deliberately. So, you know, using a a you know RDS versus uh, some other relational database, it's fairly easy to swap out relational databases, quite honestly. You know, so we don't really see that that kind of thing as being a lock-in.
0: Okay. So you mentioned serverless. I would love to hear about some of the uh, considerations you have. Like, what are the services that look promising for... So people who don't know, Lambda is this uh, thing that Amazon introduced recently. Other companies have similar offerings. But it's basically like you can put in a line of code that you want to execute at a certain time but you you don't know what server it's going to execute on that's why it's called serverless but the cost savings are quite tremendous for serverless so i'd love to hear about how you're thinking about using lambda
1: yeah so where where we initially got introduced to lambda was as a way to synchronize data between DynamoDB and cloud search so one of the ways that lambda has been described for da- DynamoDB is almost a way to do stored procedures so if you're running Postgres, you know, or Oracle, you can write all these store procedures. But the, the challenge is, is that you're using the database as essentially an application server. And that can be very limiting from a scalability perspective. With Lambda, you can have triggers on the data and the job. It's really a task will get executed externally to the database. And so you can do things like synchronize, you know, um, DynamoDB with, um, you know, with a, with a search service. And, you know, that's a very natural uh, way of using it. But we're also looking, um, we have, we have a hackathon coming up this week, uh, tomorrow and Friday. And I know one person's looking at how we can use Lambda to implement, say, our click tracking. Now, this is again, more of a hackathon project, but it's kind of interesting to say, um, these are, that would be very easy to do as a kind of task oriented, uh, approach where it's very scalable. So as much as many tasks come along, you can, Offload them to Lambda. And if they, the task is fairly simple, um, you know, you don't necessarily have to have them think of it from a server perspective and then being able to scale up the server. Basically, let Amazon, you know, continue to just take these tasks and execute them in their, you know, in their Lambda environment. Um, so th- those kind of tasks are, are, are very attractive to do using Lambda. Um, any data processing has a lot of advantages to, to look at using Lambda. Um, so I think it's from that that perspective, the scalability, um, that that could be interesting.
0: So uh, just to wrap up, we're, uh, I know we're up against time. Uh, since since you work at an email delivery service, I'm just curious about what your perspective is on how email volume is changing. Do you feel like, you know, is email going up? Is it decreasing? Is it staying the same? And um you know, how are the demands on the inbox services changing? I mean, do they have to be more, uh, you, know, are, you know, like is, is Gmail getting more uh, scrutinizing of email and, and potentially marking more transactional emails as spam because they want people to have the same ultimate volume with their inbox? And Just give me a picture for how the email volume world is changing.
1: Email volume is, is definitely going up and all of our customers and their volume is going up in part because they themselves are growing, but also they are using email, uh, more. Uh, but I think that people are using email differently. So their email is this, uh, you know, Swiss army knife of communication. So there's, you know, you can do interpersonal communication, but you can also send attachments, you know, or you can send photos and you can um you know send legal documents but there's all these other better ways that have come out for doing that and so i think you'll see you know email being used less and less obviously to share photos like there's other ways to do that or sharing documents uh or even you know just chatting with friends um that's um you know that's been replaced by a lot of social media or dropbox or things like that but actually um certainly uh business to customer uh, communication it continues to be the most effective way, as well as in the most ubiquitous way that you know everybody has an email address, everybody can be contacted. they may or may not have you know different mobile apps um but they will have email and um just continues to show that for even from a marketing perspective, email continues to be um the most effective um the most um in terms of r o i you know the best the best bet. So another you know, email volumes is can continue to go up. Um, but I think that you also see, you know, spam volumes continue to go up. So as you were as you were alluding to, inbox providers like Gmail and such continue to get more and more aggressive and also smarter to be able to weed out, you know, spam and phishing uh versus uh good email as well. And I think that there are certainly a number of large email senders um that you know, help to continue to push um, push standards around security and around um, you know good sending practices. And there's certainly some bodies, um, uh, you know, standards bodies and such out there, of which some some of which we're a member of to continue to help improve, and make sure that you know email is um, the email that people get in their inbox is is something that they're actually that they want to get, that they've signed up for, that they expect, and it's not you know some some junk or some email from you know, that the famous Nigerian prince.
0: <laughs> right. All right. Well, Chris, thanks for coming on to Software Engineering Daily. It's been great talking to you about email and the infrastructure for delivering email that you've built at SparkPost.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a really good conversation.